checked in. We're going to be in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Ezra chapters 1 and 2 started a new series last week called The Long Road Home. And today we're going to get a good look at why that is the name of this series. We're going to get an idea of just how long this road uh, might be. And so what we saw last week, which by the way, if you, if you weren't here last week, you can get that message on YouTube right now. We don't have a podcast available right now due to some weird technical difficulties tied all the way back to technical decisions that were made 10 years ago with our, uh, our sending church and servers and all kinds of stuff. We're working on getting that fixed so that the podcast will be fixed if that's how you guys typically uh, listen and get caught up. So hopefully we'll have that re- remedied in the next week or two. Uh, but you can always get those on YouTube, so you can get that and get a little caught up on uh, the background of the series and how we, how we got here. But what we saw is that uh, there's a, a, a new king, a Persian king named Cyrus, uh, that had taken over and had defeated Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonians who had previously uh, defeated Judah and the southern tribes of Israel, taking them off into uh, exile. And so now... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been defeated, Cyrus has taken over, and this new king takes over with a totally different philosophy of what to do with conquered peoples. In his view, if the conquered people do well, his, uh, his empire will do well. Essentially, if the Jews are making money, selling products, and growing uh, in his kingdom, then he can tax them more. He makes more if they make more money, he makes more money. Uh, and, and both... both uh, Kind of a, a win-win situation is the way that he would, uh, he would look at that. And that's where we pick up in uh, verse 2, which we read last week, but we're going to read again this week in Cyrus's decree for the Jews. And, but before we get there, we'll get there in just a minute. Before we get there, uh, I, I just want to be completely honest with you as we start this text this morning. What we're going to read this morning is boring. It's boring. And it's okay that we say that out loud. There is nobody in this room that has turned to Ezra chapter 2 for devotional reading. I promise you. Now, maybe you've read Ezra chapter 2, but that's because you were on a reading program and you wanted to check that box. That's why you have read Ezra 2, and that's the only reason to read Ezra 2. Because there's no sound bites. There's no good, like, hey, I'm going to go to this one and preach this message off of this. It's boring reading. And sometimes in the Bible... You get there, and that's just the way that it is. Because the Bible wasn't written for our entertainment. It was written to tell a story. And there are parts of the story that need to be told that just aren't a lot of fun, that explain what is going on. And if you don't fully understand what is going on in the midst of the historical situation, you can be totally lost. So this is one of those passages. If you've read it in a reading plan, then you've gotten there and you've been like, okay. And then you've said, what, what am I reading tomorrow? Because this was not helpful for me today. But I did it, and then you move on. You just have to be careful when you study the Bible that just because it's not exciting, you assume that there's not anything important that is happening. Because there are important things that are happening here. And what you will see uh, is that, that I, I think it will teach us a lot about who God is, and it will teach us a lot about who we are in these text. And that will be our pattern for this morning. First, we will see what it teaches us about God. Second, we will see what it teaches us about ourselves. And then third, we will see what that means for us now. So what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? And then what does that mean for us today? So Ezra chapter 1, 
verse 2 is where we'll start. We're going to read 2 through 11. I'm going to read all this. Some of it you'll follow. Some of it you might not, but that's all right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll parse some of this out. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. So he's making his decree for the Jews. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now, don't misunderstand this, where it says the Lord God has given all this to me. This is not him paying due honor to God. This is him saying, God, like all these other gods, blessed me because all the gods blessed me because I am this great and wonderful king. That's kind of what he's saying there. This is not like him being the divine servant or anything like that. That is just him saying, look, even the Jews God has blessed me. So that's what he's saying there. And he has charged me to build this house at Jerusalem. So he had been communicated the prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And that's what he says there, which is in Judah. And then in verse 3 he says, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided with them vessels of silver, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought out these, uh, brought these out in charge of uh, Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out as Cheshbazar. There's some great names in these chapters too, by the way. The prince of Judah, and this was the number of them: thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred ten bowls of, sir- of silver, a thousand other vessels. All these ve- vessels of gold and of silver were fifty-four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up, and the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So what we have here is a pretty remarkable thing to read, and one that in many ways should remind us of something else that we have seen before. So Cyrus is going to send, uh, send the people back to their home in Israel. But he's not just going to send them back. He's, going, he's got some bigger things planned. They're not just going to go back empty-handed. He says, take all your good stuff. And I tell you what, I think I've seen some stuff in this temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stored back in the storage room. It's really nice stuff. I think I'm going to get this out, and it's, it's yours anyway. So I'm going to give it back to you, and you guys are going to take it with you. So he's going to send them back with supplies. He's going to send them back with gold, with silver, with, with, with all these things that they need in order to begin the process of rebuilding this temple. So just think about how crazy that is. This king that has conquered uh, another empire, instead of saying, give me all this to build my palace even larger and make my kingdom richer, he says, I'm going to give this, guy, this stuff back to you guys. Use it as you see fit. I'm pretty sure most of it is yours anyway. It's wild enough that he would say, go back to your homes. It's even crazier that he would give them gold and silver when they go. It's pretty amazing, but it's exactly what God had said was going to happen. 
God had always told his people that even when their days were darkest, he would not forget them. There would never be a time when his people would be gone forever. He said there would always be a remnant. This is a, a, a theme all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the prophecies and, and the prophets as they lay things out. They say, God will lay waste to you in your sin, but he will not totally and utterly forsake you. There will always be a remnant of his people, always. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and he's looking back and he's talking about the remnant of Israel that is to remain. It's a theme throughout Scripture. There would always be a people that he called his, and he would be their God. He would always be faithful. And as we wrap up chapter 1, what we find is that he is faithful and true to his promise. And not only is he faithful and true to his promise, he doesn't leave them with nothing, but he uses this pagan king to supply all of their needs. It's crazy. But it's one that should be familiar to us. At least, at least pieces of it. If you were here for the Exodus series, whenever we were studying that, one of the things we saw is that immediately after the Passover, whenever Pharaoh finally says, Moses, take your people and go, one of the things that we see is that he goes. He goes out of Egypt, and before they made it to the Red Sea, he tells them, as you go out, as you walk out, stop at every door along the way, knock on the door, and tell them to give you the gold and the silver and the finest garments that they have. Remember we talked about this, it was like reverse trick-or-treating. They knock on the door and they're like, I want all of this stuff. Give me all of your gold. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're going and they're, they're taking all this stuff. That's what happened in, in Exodus. And the Egyptians did. They gave them all this. And so these scenes are uh, familiar. God had made a promise. There had been practically no way for God to make good on that promise. The Jewish people had set up their homes in a foreign land, in Egypt there, here in, in uh, Babylonia, or now Persia. They had set up their homes, and then God calls them to leave that place and to go to a place where he had called them uh, to go to their promised land. Same thing, leaving this place where they had had a home, go to the promised land, just over and over and over. And as they go, they supply themselves with silver and gold from the country they are leaving as they go to their promised home. Those sound like really similar stories, right? There's a lot of overlap between the Exodus story and the story of God's people coming back out of exile. Both stories are stories that mark the, faithful, the faithfulness of God. Both stories are stories that Old Testament writers will harken back to, New Testament writers will harken back to the exile and say, God was faithful then, so we can know that he is faithful now. Both stories are a mark of faithfulness of God in, what, in, in the face of what seems to be overwhelming circumstances that would make those promises from God seem almost inconceivable. They were in a place where the promises God had made seemed ridiculous. They seemed absurd. They seemed like there was no way that God could or had remembered them. And yet both times God sends them out with gold on their wrists and their basins full of silver and gold, walking out to the promised land. God never wavers in his faithfulness and his commitment. Never, never, never. And this is a good principle for us to remember this morning. 
our present, our present circumstances are not good measuring sticks for God's faithfulness. What you see in the moment is not always a good, a good tool for you to use to evaluate whether or not God is ultimately good to you. We talked about this some uh, last year in March and in April. God's faithfulness is measured in large chunks, much more than it is in small snapshots. The snapshot may not look great, but the entire film tells a beautiful story of the faithfulness of God. And this is the first step in the long road home that we are able to, to get a, a look at. And we can say, look, it looked really bleak there for a long time. The, the nation was gone. The people were in exile. God had told them, you're going to go away and you're going to set up your homes in other places. The snapshot was terrible. But then if you just keep the movie rolling, you see the rest of the story play out and then you realize, wait, no, 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 no. God is still working in the midst of this. That even in the midst of the suffering, God is still working in the midst of this. He has not left them in that place of the, the snapshot in the moment where things are terrible, but in that moment he was working and he is still working. There are some days in your life when you will not be able to see God's hand, you will not be able to understand his will, and you will not be able to determine any good that can be found in that moment. There are some days when it will be dark and you will not be able to see or trace his hand at all. And there are some days when his goodness and his faithfulness is so obvious, you will not be able to keep yourself from singing and shouting about the goodness of God. The task of this life is to remember his faithfulness even in the midst of the darkness. When you have no ability to see or to feel or to count on his faithfulness, that is the definition of faith, that you believe it is still true. And that is what we have been called to. We have a tangible picture of it right here at the end of Ezra chapter 1. So let's keep reading, and I'm going to read the first two verses in an entirely boring chapter. And I thought about reading this entire chapter of Ezra chapter 2, but I can't say all the names. So I decided I'm not going to read all of this, but you guys can keep reading in your Bibles, and you can see the rest of what's, what comes after this. So Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of, the, of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to carry captive, captive to Babylonia. They re returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. We're going to talk about Zerubbabel a lot, and that's a great name to keep saying, so get used to that one. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah. That's a different Nehemiah than the one we're going to study, not the same guy. Uh, Sariah, Re'aliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Milspar, or Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Be'anah. See, I told you these were good. I like Bigvi. I think that's what I would go with if I was choosing those. The number, uh, and then it says, the number of the men of the people of Israel, and then it goes on this long list of all these different people that came back. All these numbers, just over and over and over and over. It just goes through all, like, it, it's just one after the, uh, another of all this stuff. You can just keep reading with it, and you can get lost in, in the numbers there. It, it reads like a packing invoice for a U-Haul or something. It's just boring. Temple servant after temple servant. It just doesn't stop. It keeps on going. 
So you have to ask the question, why in the world is this in our Bibles? You know, whenever the the creator of the world decided he was going to give us a text that was going to explain who he is and his faithfulness, he decided that at least one page of your Bibles, one chapter, was going to have a bunch of names you don't know and a bunch of numbers that don't have any relevance to you. And he's going to say, I'm going to take all that precious space and this is what I'm going to put in there. Why in the world would he do something like that? Why do we have it there at all? Well, for one, it does give us some historical understanding uh, of what happened, which uh, we're going to understand a little bit more. If you want to go back, if you want to go read Zechariah, he'll give you a little bit more context as to what is going on here in his, uh, in his prophecies. He'll talk to you a little bit more about what's happening uh, here in these, uh, in these verses. And we'll cover a lot more of the history as we go. But generally, here's what you guys uh, need to go. It talks about this guy Zerubbabel at the very beginning. And it says that these are the people that came with Zerubbabel, all right? Zerubbabel is the guy to start with. He is the first guy. So what we're going to see is that over the course of Ezra and Nehemiah in this book, we're going to see three separate waves of exiles come back. They don't all come back at once at the beginning of the book of Ezra. There's three separate waves. Zerubbabel leaves one. Ezra leads the second, and then Nehemiah will lead the third. And it spans almost a century, over a century apart from the beginning what we read here to when we get to Nehemiah a little bit later. So three different waves of exiles that are going to come back. The list that we have in chapter 2 is wave 1. That's the first wave that comes back. And this guy, I'm just going to call him Z, he is really, really important. He will become very important over the next few weeks as we keep going there, as we keep going through this. And as we cover as we as we cover this and we see this return back to uh, God's promised land, God's people coming back, uh, we'll see it happen in these different waves, and that will become very important as to understanding what is happening. So whenever Z comes back, his job is to lead the people to just build the temple. That's it. That's all his job is. Bring back all these people that are listed in chapter 2, and when they get there, their job, they have a job immediately. Their job is to get the temple built. Then you, you're going to fast forward uh, a few decades, and then Ezra is going to come back. And Ezra's job, Ezra is uh, kind of like the priest of the people. He's the, he's the, the Bible nerd. He keeps studying the Bible uh, and, and, and all of the scrolls that were there. He keeps studying them even in exile, one of the few Jews that had done that. And his job is going to say, all right, now that the temple is built, I'm going to teach you what you are supposed to do in worship. Because y'all don't have a clue how to do this anymore. We're so many generations removed, you don't know what church should look like. So I'm going to teach you what church should look like. That's what Ezra will do. And then Nehemiah will recognize, well, there's a temple there, but it's completely exposed. It's completely exposed because there is no city wall. And then Nehemiah will come back and he will, he will lead a team to build the city wall. But the story is not about what they build. It's about what happens as they walk this road back to build these things. So this chapter is something of a census of the people that come back. So there's some historical stuff here. Like I said, some are listed by jobs, some are listed by families, but it's just names and numbers. And if we're not careful, we'll think that this is not important because it's not entertaining. A few years back, 
Marvel started creating the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know we got some big Marvel folks here, but um, and and we love it. We've seen a ton of those movies too. They started they started creating this, and in doing this, they sought to make these individual movies that were would stand alone by themselves, but that they all fit into this larger narrative that was happening. And so now, I don't know how many movies there are in this. It, we might have some MCU nerds out there. But there's like 20, 25 movies or something like that that are in this. And they all have different threads that kind of tie them all together. Uh, it's pretty remarkable how, how they did this. Uh, and, and when they did this, they, they did something that was a little bit crazy. They got people to do something that, that they never did before. Do you know what that is? They got people to sit through the credits. Do you know how they got people to sit through the credits? They put just a little, like, 30-second scene, one-minute scene at the very end of the credits for you to watch that would either tease the next movie, tie up some loose ends in the movies that you just saw, kind of give you just a little more piece of the puzzle to understand the larger storyline that was happening. And they have some long credit scenes. If you've been to the movies and you sit there and you watch these, uh, I mean, we're talking, like, 10, 15 minutes, you're just sitting there watching words, song titles, names. They're just rolling by. One after the other, you're just sitting there trying to figure out if you had any popcorn left, but you don't. Your Coke is empty. You really, really, really got to go to the bathroom. But you're still just sitting there watching the credits scroll, scroll through. And why are you doing that? So you can see just the, the little bit. And nobody cares about the credits. That's why previously you would not stay until a movie was fully over. You would leave when the credits started the rolling because you don't care about that. But here's the thing uh, about that. Those credits are boring to me because I have absolutely no idea. Once you get past like Robert Downey Jr. and uh, you know, just a couple of the big names at the very beginning. I don't know who any of those people are in the credits. I don't know. I, I don't know who the key grip is. I don't know who the third assistant to the coffee maker is. I don't know who any of those people are. Nor do I care who any of those people are. But I can tell you somewhere, that some theater somewhere, there's some grandma that is watching those credits scroll by. And whenever John Thompson's name goes by, they're like, that's my baby. That's, that's my kid. I they're so excited and they are so proud as that name scrolls by. There's some mama somewhere that is, is just as quick as she can scanning every name up there trying to find her baby's name because her baby was a part of this project. And she is so proud. And she will scream and she will hoot and she will holler whenever that name goes by. And everybody in the theater will be like, that's a little bit weird. What are you freaking out for? You see, the thing is, I don't know who any of those names are because they don't mean anything to us, but they did mean something to that mom and to that grandma. In this chapter here in chapter 2, we kind of have some credits that are scrolling, guy, scrolling by. And listen, the names in Ezra 2 don't mean a thing to me. Outside of Zerubbabel, we don't know much about any of these people. We know a little bit about some of those first ones that were mentioned, but when you start getting into the rest of it, I don't know anything about them. Scholars know just a little bit more. There's really not much about these people. We don't know anything about them. But here's what I do know about every one of those names. Every single one of them meant something to God. Every single one of them. 
They all had a mom that was proud of them. They all had brothers and sisters and co-workers that were proud of them. They all mattered to somebody, but they definitely mattered to God. Perhaps it's a simple point for us to make this morning, but it's one that I think we would do well to remember. First, you matter to God. You matter. And over the course of the last year, we have seen, I see stat after stat, people talk about this all the time. We've seen depression rockets skyrocket, or depression rates skyrocket. We have seen uh, people rate their loneliness as much higher than they did this time last year, and it was already high this time last year. You may be stuck in a job or in a marriage where you feel completely invisible. You may, you may, You may be stuck in a situation where you feel like no one knows you at all. You may feel like you are absolutely invisible to a lot of people. But I I need to tell you, you are not invisible to God. You matter. He sees you. He knows you. And he longs for you to come to him as you would a loving parent or a caring friend. He sees you. You matter to God. Everyone matters to God. And one byproduct of that means that people should matter to us. We get so wrapped up in our lives, in our to-do list, in our bills, in our uh, jobs, in our families, in our uh, things that we've got to do around the house that we can forget how much people matter to God. All people of all all races, all people of all races and all religions, they all matter to God, and therefore they should matter to us. This is a basic part of being a disciple of Jesus. If people do not matter to you, and I know none of you would say that, but if practically other people don't matter to you and you are just focused on yourself, getting yours, making sure you're taking care of yourself, and you do so to the neglect of other people, if that is you, then you can in no substantial way call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is who he is. He cares for people. If we're going to live anything like Jesus, we had better make sure that we spend our lives on people, showing them that they matter. And that ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, past sins, financial stability, none of that should change that truth. Everyone matters to God. Every person. And every person should matter to us. Finally, I want you to look down to the last verse of chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. It says, Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Simple little verse kind of puts a bow on this census that they have uh, laid out there of all these people. But it lists some tasks for those people that came back with Zerubbabel. It lists some tasks for them to do. They had jobs to do. In the temple and outside of the temple. They all had their role to play. Those families that came back faced a hard road. They probably left some pretty decent conditions where they were at. 
They had had uh, at least two, maybe three generations uh, in order to establish themselves in this new place, create a new home. And now they were leaving that place that they had created, leaving that home that they had built with their garden in the front yard. They are leaving that, and now they are heading back to Jerusalem. And when they go back to Jerusalem, they are not heading back to an old home that's a fixer-upper. They are heading back to rubble. They're heading back to nothing. There's nothing good that awaits them when they get there. There's nothing that should drive them to go there. They returned there, and they had to immediately get to work. They had to get to work on the temple. They had to get to work on their own homes. They had to get to work on helping one another. Why is this important? It is important because God makes it clear that the worship of God is central to the work and the activity of the people. They have to get started on the temple immediately. They don't get there and say, all right, we're going to spend the next 10 years developing these communities, and then once we have these communities, we'll build this nice church for the people to go to church to. They do not say that. They say, we've got to get here and get to work on the temple. God has jobs for them to do immediately. And friends, none of that has changed today. The worship of God is central to the work of his people. That is us today. Our work, what is central to our work, individually, as a church, corporately, is the worship of God. God's worship is our central calling. And to that end, God has a task for you. Think about that for just a second. I think we take that for granted, that God has a task for us in that. I think we take that for granted, and in fact, whenever we hear that, the immediate thing that we think is, oh man, I hope it's not really hard or embarrassing or time-consuming or expensive. I can do like a lot of things, but a lot of things I can't do. I really hope whatever that task is, I'll be able to say yes to that thing. And you get a little bit nervous. Listen, the fact that you have a task at all in pursuing the worship of God is nothing short of amazing grace shown to you by God. By no rights should we have a task given to us for that. I want to read for you just a couple of verses here. They're not going to come up uh, on the screen. I just want to read a couple of these. And and I want just for this to sink into your head just a little bit here. So listen to these from Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. This is the heavens that are declaring the glory of God. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands swarmed the dry land. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, the gra- by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Psalm 104, he made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You make 
darkness and it is night and all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to, to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creature, creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And there go the ships and the Leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the, sh the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. I could go on and on and on. I stopped here with these. I could read on and on and on. God does not need our worship. God does not need our praise. The trees will clap their hands. The rocks will pour, for, will pour forth speech. The heavens will declare his glory. The stars shout his name. He doesn't need our worship. Yet, he gives us a task and he says, I want you to pursue me. Because I am worthy of it and because I am gracious enough to allow you to do it. He doesn't need our worship. But he shows us grace and he says, but I want your worship and I want you to be a part of it. And then he gives the, 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 the workers a job and he says, go to the temple and build the temple because I desire the worship of Israel. I desire the worship of the exiles that come back. And today he says, go to the church, sing songs. I desire the worship of the people. Open my word, teach my word, pray to me. I desire the worship of my people. Even that is a grace that is shown to us. It is a mercy that has been given us. And in that, whenever God says, I have a task for you, I have a job for you, I have a role for you, our response should not be, oh goodness, I hope it's not too hard or embarrassing. Our response should be, I will go where you send me. Here I am. I will do your bidding because you are worthy of worship. This is for his glory and for our good. But it is not necessary. He does not have to do that. What's even more amazing is that he chooses to use us in the task of spreading the message of his faithfulness. He could send angels. He could just show up in a bright light. He could have the trees start talking. He could have the rocks start talking. He could have all kinds of different ways. He, he could make the stars spell out in some universal language how great he was if he wanted to. But instead, what he says is, I will send my ministers. I will send my people. And my people will declare my name. From generation to generation and to, to, to tongues that have not heard, they will go. His chosen method of delivering the message that he is worthy of praise is through his people. This is the task we are called to, to share the good news of God's glory and his grace toward us. This is what every single Christian is called to do. Not a few chosen missionaries, every single one of us to bear witness and to follow in his task. Now, some of what your task may be, may be here at church. 
It may be here on a Sunday morning. It may be some other way. It may be leading a, a, a fr- or hosting a front porch community. It may be leading a discipleship group. It may be uh, standing up here to sing or to, to play music. It may be all kinds of different ways. It may be working with kids. It may be sweeping the floors. It may be cleaning the toilets. It may be all of those things. Or your task may not be here at the church at all. It might be using another organization to help care for orphans. It may be using another organization to help help, uh, uh, moms that are in a difficult circumstance. It may be helping uh, another organization to help those that are uh, coming off of addiction to try to help them take the next step. It may be to help college students and work with college students through, through, uh, through what we do here, through RUF. It may be through a, a ministry that does not exist right now. But God is saying, this is how I want you to make my name great. Now go do it. But we all have a job. It may be at home. If you're a parent, it is at home to your kids. But we've all been given a job. We've all been given a task. Let's just take these three things that we've learned together and put them together, kind of bring them all together, learn them home. One, God is faithful to his promises. Two, everyone matters to God. Three, God has a job for each of us to do. God is faithful to his promises. Everyone matters to God, and God has a job for each of us to do. Now, can you see how those work together? If God is faithful, everyone matters. Put those together. And you have your job. Your task is before you. Now, it will flesh itself out differently for all of us. But in its essence, that is our task. That is our calling. That is who we are called to be. So my question for you this morning is, who matters to you? Or maybe a better question would be, who doesn't? And there's some repentance that needs to happen there. What job have you been given Or what job have you run from? And then my final question is, will you be faithful? This is the story of our faith. Of a God who loves us enough, who is faithful to us. And ultimately, that faithfulness is not even shown in the exiles returning. It's not even shown in the temple being rebuilt. It's shown in the cross, the death of his son, who came to bear our sin. What Chris said, that we would would be able to reap what we did not sow, what he sowed on our behalf. And that is what faithfulness looks like to us. That is what we look back on and we say, if God has been faithful in the exodus, exodus if God has been faithful in the exile, and, and if God has been faithful to send his son to pay the price for our sin, then my response is, I've got to take that message to everyone because everyone matters and they need to hear that message. Will you pray with me? Father, we are humbled that you would choose to use us in this calling to, to, to take your name to the nations, to take your name to the neighbors, to take your name to our sons and our daughters, our friends and our coworkers.
Father, we confess that we think too highly of ourselves. As though it were our right to be included. As though it were our right that you would be faithful. Father, we confess that we think too little of grace and too highly of ourselves. Help us to truly understand how you have been faithful to us in spite of ourselves. Father, break our hearts when people don't matter to us. It's in Christ's name we pray.